0: We are up at the most beautiful government building in the United States of America. It basically is nestled up against the foothills in Boulder, right below the Mesa Trail.
1: Dan King and I sit outside on a blue sky morning in Boulder, Colorado. A blocky adobe-colored building, designed by the famous architect I.M. Pei, houses the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR. The NCAR Mesa Lab and foothills of the Rocky Mountains tuck around us as we look out onto the surrounding city and flat landscape tapering off to the east.
0: It's one of my favorite places to ride my bike up to because you get a very, very good climb with very little traffic and very friendly drivers. And if you're really up for some kick-ass workout, you can just do a whole bunch of loops.
1: (laughs) Dan rode his bike to meet me for the interview. Colorado is home to some pretty ambitious athletes and outdoor enthusiasts. Dan, he's one of those.
0: I've been a competitive athlete since I was young. I was uh, started running when I was in high school, and I've continued to run pretty much my whole life. I'm, I do multi-sport endurance athletics. I do triathlon, and I especially love still to run as a master's athlete. My most notable accomplishment as an athlete has been... Um, being the first person in the world to run under four minutes, 50 seconds for the mile over the age of 60.
1: He grew up in Colorado Springs and went to college in Boulder in the 80s. He remembers running inside the university's field house and feeling how poor indoor air quality would impact his performance. That awareness has stayed with him.
0: When you exert yourself at a really high level of intensity as an athlete, it does different things to your breathing than when you're just sort of, let's say, out for a walk or out for an easy jog. I feel it outdoors as well on the days that I train hard. In the summer times here, Colorado used to seem like the bad air days were pretty infrequent. And now it's kind of like, I'm not sure it's a really great place to train in the summer times.
1: In 2020, during the heart of the pandemic lockdown, Dan noticed the difference the reduced traffic had on the air.
0: Now because nobody was driving anywhere to work. And it was an amazing how much the air quality improved around here. It was tangible and palpable how much better it was. You, you experience it and you feel it viscerally, you feel, feel it physiologically. You don't have the post-workout hack vests and things
1: like that. During those early months of the pandemic, a reduction in cars on the roads did help improve the air some, but that didn't last. And then that same summer, Colorado had a major wildfire season that would smoke up the air for days on end. Serious athletes have to weigh the risk of training and racing in subpar air. Dan's sister is one of those. A few years ago, she was pursuing a world record in Oregon while wildfires were burning miles away.
0: She wanted to break the American record for 20,000 meters and 25,000 meters, which they run on a track. So it was probably air quality index number, maybe in the 150s. And she went and ran her guts out for two hours on a track. And it left such a residual uh, breathing set of complications for her. She's better now, but it took years before that cleared through her system.
1: Dan faced his own dilemma when he had an opportunity to break another record on a day when wildfire smoke polluted the air.
0: I wanted to break the American record for the mile. It wasn't going to be a ratified record, but I still wanted to do it. On the one hand, your brain is saying, this is my one opportunity to do this, I need to do this and you know, that's the power of goals and, and having put so much energy into getting to a certain level of fitness. On the other hand, you're like, this is such a bad idea. Why am I gonna do this to myself? It's easy to skip a hard training day if there just is really bad outside. You look at your phone and the AQI is 125. It's like, no, I'm not gonna train today. I'm not going outside. I'll go, I'll do something indoors. But. When you put goals, you set goals for yourself as an athlete and they're out in the distance and you put such a time and energy commitment into achieving something, it's really hard to walk away from it because eh, the air doesn't seem great.
1: Dan has to weigh the trade-offs of his goals with the reality of things out of his control, such as achieving a new record which he may only have one shot to do, especially as a master's athlete in his 60s.
0: You can't reverse the clock on aging.
1: Or protecting his health.
0: You know, subjecting yourself, your physiology to bad air at that level of intensity is not a great thing for you, but you don't know how bad it is. And until you've done it to yourself, you know, you can kind of talk yourself out of that it's going to be that bad. And then once you do it to yourself, you're like, wow, this is left sort of, I'll just call it lasting damage, you know? Is it lifetime lasting? I don't know, but it's definitely damage. I realize I'm privileged in life. I've been successful in my business career. I've been successful in my athletic career. And I'm also a person who doesn't have to be subjected to the really deleterious effects of bad air because I don't have any choices and I don't have options. I know that I'm lucky in that regard. And I also feel for people that don't have, have those options and those opportunities. We have, to, we have to figure out how to be better in that regard. You know, what's really progress when you really think about it that way, right? Our species is way too near-term focused and not looking, looking out far enough.
1: Poor air quality can impact anyone's ability to breathe. And athletes and outdoor enthusiasts are just another group that sees and feels the effects. Research shows that exposure to an air quality index, even in the good to moderate classification, can impact a runner's time. And when the air quality index reaches 101 or above, which is the next level up from moderate and called unhealthy for sensitive groups, outdoor exercise is discouraged. Dan's awareness of the significance of air quality came through his direct experience. But many people might not be as explicitly aware. And maybe even more critically, once we know about how poor air quality can impact our health, what does it take to change our behaviors, either to reduce our exposure or how we contribute to it? My name is Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, this is Clearing the Air, The Hazy Future of Our Skies, an eight part series about the state of air in Colorado and how we are navigating this complex problem that knows no borders.
2: So it has our school logo um, with our mascot, which is the Bulldog. Um, It is purple.
1: I'm outside at a local middle school, Prep Academy, which is a pathway school and part of the Denver public school system, looking up at a flagpole that has a box mounted to it.
2: And then it's got a solar panel connected to it, and then it just transfers that information inside to our TV.
1: It's one of the Love My Air sensors sponsored by the city of Denver. I'm meeting with Brett Champion, a science teacher here.
2: I've been teaching for 27 years.
1: And Ephra Milton, an outreach and education coordinator for the Love My Air program.
2: Been with the Love My Air
3: program for about a year and some change. Um, yeah, the sensors are, um, they monitor PM 2.5. In a lot of these schools, there is a TV display as well that shows uh, what the air quality is in that area.
1: The Love My Air program started in 2018 by a grant from the Bloomberg Mayor's Challenge. The program is about reducing air pollution and limiting exposure through behavior change, advocacy, and community involvement. It started with schools, initially targeting those that have high rates of kids on reduced and free lunches. The idea of putting monitors at schools is important because kids' health is at increased risk from poor air quality.
3: Unfortunately, a lot of these schools that have these high asthma rates are still underreported asthma. So you still have an asthma rate of like 20% at the school, but there still could be a ton of students that still have underreported or no reported asthma because they can't get an inhaler or, or go to the doctor or something like that.
1: The program has grown to more than 40 monitors in schools and has created a network of data that is easily viewable via the Love My Air app.
3: We want to expand the program to beyond schools as well. And so we're talking about um, working with some of the local clinics that we have around Denver. Having that monitor at at a clinic or at the school, that that kind of gives our community, our children, our our students, whomever, the information they need to make decisions about, all right, what can I do when there is poor air quality.
1: For Brett, she likes the hands-on learning it provides to teach difficult concepts to kids. When Brett started teaching at Prep, she noticed two large TV monitors in the school's main hallway.
2: Neither one of them were on at the time, and I was just like, I wonder what those do. Well, then finally, the Love My Air TV got turned on, and I was like, well, what is that? And I would walk by it, and I would look at it. And then I figured out, I was like, okay, that's air quality, but why? Like, why do we have it? Like, what do we do with it? Is it just there?
1: Brett learned about a teacher training for the Love My Air curriculum. So she decided to sign up.
2: And so I went to the training, and I was like, oh my gosh, okay, this is great. Now I've got to figure out, how do I use this, right? And we were doing project-based learning at that time, so we were creating projects for kids. I was like, oh my gosh, we're doing one on pollution. We are going to figure out, what is it about pollution? Like, what do, do we, do we know about our air? Like, do we care about our air? Should we care about our air? Like, what should we care about? And I started it every Friday. The kids would get together for about an hour and a half and we would just look at pollution and how it affects us and what are we doing that affects our air quality? And you know, the kids were not interested. (laughs) I can't even be like, oh my God, they were so into it because they weren't. Um, but they started to get into it, right? Certain aspects of it made them spark. And there was one day where I was absent, and it was when the fires, I can't remember where the fires were at that point, but there were fires, and our air quality was bad. And I was out that day, and the kids, I came back on Monday, and they were like, oh my gosh, the air quality monitor, it was red. And I was like, what do you mean? They were like, the thing was red. It was green. It was yellow. We've seen it there. It was red this time. They were like, you could see it too. And I was like, okay. So now they were beginning to understand if you can visibly see it, that means it's really bad, right?
1: She also recently taught a high school summer course where she continued her growing experiment around air quality education.
2: I was like, okay, you guys are field researchers. I want to know what is our air quality up here? The first day, I made them go out to a busy intersection and count cars. I said, and then I want you to tell me how many times do you see visible emissions coming from a car? And so four times a day for a month, they would go out and stand on a corner and they would check how many cars, how many trucks. And then we introduced the air quality monitors. So they had to learn how to use those first, so we used them in an isolated situation, and then I put them out there. And then we looked at idling. What does idling at the stoplight look like versus idling in a drive-through? What does indoor air quality look like versus outdoor? And which is better? And which is polluted worse? So having them dig into it and looking at the particulate matter, like which of the particulate matters is worse? Is it the PM10, is it the PM2.5, or is it the PM1?
1: Over time, the students became more and more engaged with the project. One day, a group had a theory that the air quality was the worst at their intersection when six semi-trucks were lined up at the light. They then used their data to test their theory. It held up. When Brett told her students about public transit being free for two months of the summer, they got excited.
2: They were like, oh, maybe more people will ride public transportation and it will lighten up on the cars because then they also noticed how many people are in cars when they stop at the stoplight. And they were like, a lot of times it's one. Mm-hmm. Yes, but we just got out of the pandemic and so people are still probably not wanting people in their car. you know. And then they were like, well, that's why ride sharing is good. And So it was really good to see them then thinking past what I had given them and trying to figure out how do we solve those types of problems. You know, I make them think about what are things that are out of the control of people? Okay, now what are the things in control of people? So if we can't control this area over here of natural pollution, how can we then control what we're doing? That's the problem.
1: Awareness can be a key driver for change. And while behavior and system changes are difficult, it doesn't have to be big to have ripple effects.
4: Good morning, everyone. I am pleased to officially announce that RTD will be offering the Zero Fare for Better Air program again this summer.
1: For the second year in a row, the Regional Transportation District, RTD, made ride fares free for everyone on public transportation during July and August. And the timing was intentional. These are two of Colorado's worst months for ozone formation. The goal, get people out of their cars.
4: Last year's feedback from customers bears out the fact that if people try something new, they can change their behavior.
1: I lived in Washington, D.C. before moving to Colorado. And for about eight years, I didn't own a car. It was easy to get around the city because of great public transit. But I knew moving out west that it would be way more difficult to get around without a car. So I bought one. Because Colorado, like many Western states, is car-centric, often due to how we've developed the land for our cities and roads. In Denver, 75% of all daily trips are done by people in cars as compared to walking, biking, or public transportation. Public transportation has had fits and starts in Colorado. And as it currently exists, it isn't really robust enough to solve our transportation emissions challenge. But increased ridership can make an impact if it reduces vehicle trips. Taking public transit might be impractical for some, or an inconvenience for others. A survey conducted last year by the Colorado Fiscal Institute found that travel time, reliability, and cost are significant barriers for people to use public transit. Then there are those who might just need the motivation. That's why Bonnie Trowbridge thinks we should be more conscious of our overall impact and options when we think about how we move people and goods.
4: When we're out talking to people, we're like, you know, if, if you need to go somewhere, first think about walking. If you can't walk, take a bus. You know, if you can't take the, a bus or a train, depending on where you live. And if, if that doesn't work for you, take the cleanest car that you can. Make sure that, you know, you've tuned it up so that it's not spewing out the bad uh, emissions and that, you know, you're not idling.
1: Bonnie is the executive director of Drive Clean Colorado.
4: Drive Clean talks a lot about transportation equity and how important it is that everyone has the ability to get to where they need to go, whether that's to school or to work or to a doctor's office. So we wanna make sure that people on a very basic level have that access.
1: Drive Clean Colorado provides support and assistance with things like incentives or information about reducing what's known in the transportation world as vehicle miles traveled. Because transportation is one of the largest sources of ozone precursors in Colorado. One of the programs that Bonnie and her team run is called Drive
4: Electric Colorado,
1: which is about spreading the word and reducing friction to convert people
4: to electric vehicles. We have about 50 50- to 60 volunteers now, and they most of them own at least one EV, electric vehicle, and they come and just talk to people. Here's what it's like for me to drive my Bolt every day. I've had it for three years, and here are some of the problems that I've had, and here are some of the ways that I love it. So that whole connecting with someone who isn't a salesperson, who has this real experience has been really powerful.
1: A challenge with some behavior change is the fear of something new and unknown
4: or that it will be a hassle. Fears that I hear do stem mostly from charging. So there's a group of, of people who have garages and have a plug in their garage, and an EV is perfect for them. You just plug it into the wall and it'll charge. Um, there are a lot of people, though, who don't have garages. so. The concern for people who don't have garages is, where am I going to charge? Is it going to be super expensive for me to charge if I'm not charging at home overnight? And when I get to the charger, is it going to work?
1: For some, there are actual barriers to adoption. Many homeowners have access to garages, but home-based charging for renters can be a big challenge. We're still early in the game when it comes to building infrastructure for reliably charging EVs. But there has been significant progress. In the US, there are 58,000 public EV charging stations. That's compared to about 145,000 gas stations. The push to get people into electric vehicles is on full throttle. In 2020, Colorado passed a rule requiring automakers to ensure 5% of their vehicles for sale were EVs by 2023. And globally, about 11% of new car sales are electric. Another obstacle can be the cost. So some policymakers are being creative by making EVs more financially accessible to lower income populations. There are tax credits, incentives, and rebates all over the place. For example, the Colorado Energy Office has an interesting approach where starting in 2024, if you buy a less expensive EV, you will receive a greater tax rebate than the more expensive models. And while all these steps are trying to solve a problem, it can still be difficult for people to afford an EV or even navigate the options.
4: All those incentives, it's really complicated right now, and every person we talk to has a different story because especially on the consumer side, the incentives are based on how much money you make, where you live, what kind of car you're looking at, where that car is made, where the batteries are made, where you live within the state, who your utility is. That's a lot of variables. So if we had a simple way for people to get a voucher and it's like a cash voucher that then they say, okay, I'm going to take this to, I'm going to you know, buy this car from my neighbor and take it and it exchanges like cash. If I had a magic wand, I'd figure out a way to do that.
1: Research shows that moving to EVs is an important mitigation tool to combat climate change and local air pollution. But there are trade-offs that will need to be solved for. Charging an EV using a coal-heavy electric grid, like in parts of the Midwest, can defeat some of the benefits. Also, EVs can be heavier and wear down tires faster, adding particulates to the air. And then there's the ever-present challenge of mining for critical mineral resources. It's important to think about these challenges
4: as a whole system. I think that scaling something that is still so early stage is exciting, but it's also a little scary. And it's one of the things that keeps me up at night. I know I just keep thinking, are we going to build something that then we can't easily adjust when something comes along that's like, oh, this is a better idea. So how do we make things that are retrofittable in some cases? Or right now, these vehicles that are being run on a coal grid, as that grid continues to clean and we get more renewable energy, then what are we doing to make sure that every piece of that car is cleaner? The batteries are being made more sustainably. You know, more importantly, what are we doing to talk to people about Let's, let's walk more. How, what are we doing with cities to make sure that cities are safe? And how are we working with rural communities that need to get places where it's not easy to walk? So it's the big picture that we have to be thinking about.
1: In our complex, modern, consumerist society, we invariably face trade-offs. Addressing one aspect of the issue may demand innovative solutions elsewhere in the system. And as we grow more conscious of the far-reaching impacts of emissions on our health, the economy, and the environment, we need to make hard choices. Because the status quo has proven unsustainable. In the heat and sun of summer, homeowners and landscapers fire up their gas lawn mowers to cut the heavily watered grass many of us grow, despite the semi arid climate of Colorado's high plains. And this is the worst time to add ozone-causing emissions to the atmosphere.
5: Folks would tease me when I got my first electric lawn mower, and, you know, everyone's used to the big rumbling noisy gas-powered mowers that you smell like fuel when you're done and exhaust and you spilled some in the driveway when you filled it up anyway. Now I'm, you know, mowing the lawn with this thing that hardly made any noise and man or man said, what are you doing, vacuuming the grass? You know, <laughs> I was like, no, you know, leave me alone. I'm just cutting the lawn here. <laughs> you, wish, you wish you were me.
1: Meet the congenial Mike Silverstein.
5: I'm the executive director of the Regional Air Quality Council. I've been with the RAC, as we're called, for almost five years now as the executive director. And I grew up with the uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the late 1980s, early 90s, and then um, moved over to the state of Colorado and worked for the Department of Public Health and Environment for
1: 25 years. Mike grew up in Colorado. And like many we've spoken with, he also remembers Denver's brown cloud and appreciates how far we've come in improving air quality in the region. His work with the RAC seeks to ensure that we keep improving.
5: We're not a regulatory agency. We don't have the authority to tell anybody what to do. We're an advisory body, and we're a group that implement programs like education outreach and incentive programs and encouraging voluntary activities.
1: The RAC is the lead planning agency across nine counties in the ozone non-attainment area of the Front Range of Colorado. The governor appoints the board members, They range from heads of agencies to politicians, to business leaders, to those with scientific and technical expertise. Building out stakeholder groups and finding common ground is a big part of their work to move the needle on air quality.
5: That's really the purpose of the RAC to begin with. Back in 1990, the Clean Air Act said for these large non-attainment areas and these big urban areas, you should have what's called a lead planning agency, to work at the local level pulling together transportation and business and industry and citizens together because ultimately the state is responsible for improving air quality and implementing programs. But the state is pretty clumsy at working with people at the local level.
1: When you start looking at the landscape of actors working in air quality, it can start to feel pretty daunting. It's hard to understand who does what, who has what authority, how does an idea get enacted. So here's my short policy 101 on how all these groups intersect. Legislators lay the groundwork by passing bills, providing overarching policy directives. Then government entities like the Colorado Department of Public Health and the Environment craft intricate proposals to fulfill these mandates. The Air Quality Control Commission uses its authority to create rules, carefully selecting which proposals warrant adoption. Other entities like the RAC contribute their own policy concepts, enriching the discussion at various junctures and even lending support to program implementation. Then there are numerous influential organizations, like nonprofits, businesses, and associations that advocate for specific policies and programs. When we were recording this episode, the RAC was leading a proposal to reduce emissions from lawn and garden equipment in the ozone non-attainment region. Because while these might be things that we don't give much thought to, they are the fourth leading contributor to front-range emissions.
5: We've changed our natural environment to this artificial place that we live in. We're not supposed to have lawns and trees and, you know, look at the prairie drive, you know, 10 minutes east of town. That's what our environment is supposed to be. But of course we don't live like that. And so we have to burn gasoline to take care of our lawn. We're basically saying that has to stop. We need to incentivize the electrification of the equipment. So yeah, you still mow your lawn, but it's with electric. It's zero emission. Or we're looking at regulatory approaches that restrict the sale of gasoline equipment going forward. Okay, what what you have now, use it. But in the future, you're only going to be able to purchase electric because that's our air quality need. The natural transformation to electric is happening, and proposals that we're considering now might speed that up and make it mandatory in the future.
1: Since we talked with Mike, Colorado's governor signed an executive order requiring state agencies to phase out their gas-powered lawn and garden equipment by 2025. The intent is to lead by example with the government fleets for now, while looking at incentives for the public and businesses to transition. Restrictions on what people can buy or use can sometimes be controversial. Policymakers have to consider the cost and try to find a reasonable approach that doesn't place an undue burden on people who, for example, rely on this equipment for their livelihoods. That's why phased approaches and incentives are most politically palatable. Gas-powered lawn equipment is another example of trade-offs between how fast and who bears the cost of transitioning away from emissions-based activities. And sometimes it might not be about dollars and cents, It just might be about our behavior, habits, or convenience. We
5: want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, as much as we want to do it without anyone telling us anything. That's just human nature.
1: That's why Mike believes we need a range of options for people to choose from.
5: There is no one solution. If we went to zero driving today, we wouldn't achieve the summertime ozone standard. If we shut down the entire oil and gas industry, we wouldn't achieve the summertime ozone standards. If we closed the Suncor refinery, we'd see local benefit in the region around Suncor. But the Suncor refinery is less than all the emissions from mowing our lawns on a a typical day, far less. So there is no one magic bullet. That's why it's important to look at everything comprehensively
1: so with no magic bullet, that means lots of solutions need to be on the table. Some that people might easily accept and others that might be contentious. Take, for example, the story of eTrip, an employer traffic reduction program that was modeled after similar programs in other non-attainment areas around the country. It was proposed in Colorado in 2021.
5: Basically, it says that if you're a large employer, you have to help your employees get to work in a more efficient way. So your goal is to get your folks to carpool, ride the bus, transit, walk, bike, telework, whatever it is, one day a week, two days a week. There were different levels of compliance that were envisioned. We we just we didn't anticipate the furor of advocates on the other side that basically turned the whole story into something it wasn't. Said the regulation will require everyone to move within 10 miles of where they had to work. The regulation said nothing like that. And then the governor got with that we were working on this. It was moving its way up for consideration by the state air commission. And the governor pulled it.
1: The experience shows how in politics, buy-in, timing, and messaging matter. On hot summer days when the ozone risk is high, the RAC broadcasts messages on digital highway signs as a way to raise awareness. Messages like, ozone alert, Refuel after 5 p.m., skip the trip, exercise indoors.
5: You're getting witness by tens of thousands of drivers going by on the highway. Granted, they're already in their car and we're asking them to skip a trip or to telework, but our messaging is tomorrow, can you make this change? I think what we have to get better at is is forecasting a little further in the future so we can say it's Monday. Wednesday potentially is gonna be that ozone action day or Thursday, plan ahead and take, take action. The challenge is how accurate is it? Because everyone gets really hooked on the accuracy of things. If you forecast something and it doesn't come true, you have egg on your face. You told us it was going to be a high ozone day and it rained all day. You know, of course it's not a high ozone day. It's a rainy day. It's, those are good air quality days.
1: Even if the signs don't change human behavior today, the hope is they'll raise awareness of the urgency of Colorado's air quality and remind each of us that there's something we can do to help.
5: The little things that we just kind of accept in our lives have these side effects. And it's these side effects that we're always chasing. How do we manage the side effects? We're never going to eliminate them. We can't be perfect. We don't have to be perfect, but we have to be better.
1: Transitioning from awareness to concrete action poses a formidable hurdle. It requires a profound shift in our individual and collective actions. And we might have to traverse a terrain where our inherent self-interest stands in stark juxtaposition to the greater good. Or our access to resources may limit our aspirations. Because regardless of whether we create the right incentives and let people know how to take advantage of them, a common theme of our human condition is that changing our minds and behavior is hard. In this dynamic between intention and action, we grapple with the difficulty of making meaningful change. And no one will deny that we are undergoing a major societal transition because science has become increasingly clear about the impacts of emissions to our health, our society, and our climate. In our next episode, we'll unpack some of the more direct links between air quality and climate change by looking at air monitoring and changes in oil and gas. What are the things happening today to stem the tide of emissions? And what are the trade-offs being made? Laws of Notion is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. To learn more about this season, visit clearingtheair.org. I'm your host, Kristen Eulenbrock. This episode was written by me and Meredith Sell and produced by Trisha Waddell with help from Nicole Delaney and fact-checking by Kate Long. Sound design by Seth Samuel with tracks from Epidemic Sounds and audio support by Jesse Boynton. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. If you have learned something new, please rate, review, and share this podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.